It's good to see each one of you this morning. And I greet you in the name of Jesus, the name that is worthy of our love, of our worship, of our desire to please him. It's in his name that we have assembled this morning, and I greet you. I'm also thankful and confident that it's it's in the power of not only his name, but in the reality, spiritual realities of our, our Savior, that we can come with confidence this morning, looking for the blessing that was asked for in the prayer, and also with that confidence in our spirits and our hearts, that as we come in truth and sincerity, with love for God, that he will honor that request and minister into our lives to bring us to a more abundant experience in him. Several weeks ago, I came to church planning to preach a message, and we had a visitor here. And so I graciously gave the floor to him, thinking that I would just bring that message later. Well, I'm here this morning, but that message isn't the same as it was going to be. Somehow, I'm so thankful that, that the Lord gave me more time. And even then, I find it difficult to believe I've had enough time to prepare. So I don't really feel completely prepared for this message. It's maybe the kind of message you never get ready prepared for. I remember someone asking Brother John Risser one time, uh, when, when are you prepared to preach your message? Or how, you know, do you get prepared? How far ahead are you prepared? And if I recall correctly, and I won't quote him exactly, but he said something about you're never really prepared till you're delivering it. And then I'm not sure exactly what the implications were. But I stand before you with a sense of inadequacy, with a sense of realizing that God is using an instrument of clay, but I'm also aware that God plans it that way. And I have been... Uh, in recent weeks, reminded of that, and it's it's uh, become more of a perspective that I, I understand. I've ex- I ex- I've experienced it much in my life, but I understand it even more, a little better, I guess. That <clears throat> that God wants to be glorified through His working and His power, not what Nelson can come up with or deliver. <clears throat> the, la- the the message title. I introduced last time, and I'm going to leave it at that, but it's changed a little bit in its focus. But beyond good enough, you know, we tend to have an idea of what we expect in life or what we desire in life, and generally you would say that we're satisfied if things are good enough. But I want to challenge us this morning and encourage us to believe and realize and understand that good enough is not good enough. In the spiritual walk, we need to be beyond good enough spiritually. Our, our desire and, and our, our focus in life needs to stretch us beyond what's maybe the mundane spiritual realities around us and maybe in our own experience. We're called on by the Spirit of God and by His Word to reach to new heights of perfection. Paul, in writing, in his writing said, I, I look, I don't, I don't really accept the past is good enough, but I look, and this is my paraphrase, but I look into the future and I reach for the excellency of Christ in my life. Paul also in his writings encouraged 
many of the ones he wrote to, and he wrote a number of, of churches. And he was always challenging and encouraging to go beyond where we are, to not be satisfied with status quo. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called. That's quite a calling, to walk worthy of the calling of being perfect in Christ. And he says, but we're to walk worthy of that. So the challenge this morning is getting there. And to get there, we've got to not be satisfied with good enough. Let's reach beyond. Paul also writing to the Colossian church in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, and he's referring to the faith that had been communicated to him about the Colossian church, he says, We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. There again, that, that idea of walking worthily, <clears throat> being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you know enough? Do you know all you need to know? Do you feel like you've accomplished things pretty well in your life? You're a good Christian. You've arrived. Do you know enough? Well, we don't know enough. We are supposed to always be reaching out to fuller, to a fuller knowledge and understanding of God, who he is, how he works, what he wants of us. And there are many challenges to that end in scripture. And so I would like to challenge us this morning to go beyond good enough. And, and a verse that comes to mind as it relates to that is one in John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples and those who were listening, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And that was good enough, right? We're satisfied with that, right? He goes on to say in the next verse, the thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that they might find, that they might have life. And, and like I say, that's where we feel like we've arrived. We have life. But he goes on to say, and that they might have it more abundantly. Are we experiencing the more abundantly life? More than good enough. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And I've referred to that reality already this morning and, and how I experienced and realized that reality. And what's the purpose? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so if you are experiencing some of those extra excellencies in your life, it's not because of what you've done. It's not because you've studied so hard or that you've applied yourself so much. Oh yeah, they're important, but they don't really avail a whole lot unless it is out of faith and love for God and, and, and reaching, reaching for that excellency that can only be experienced as the Spirit working in our life. An example of this, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, he says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, 
that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, never, never take upon yourself the credit for God at being at work. By his spirit and the power of Jesus Christ in your life, never take the, the credit, the glory for that. And so there are times when people have thanked me for bringing a message that seemed to have ministered to their life. I'll often say, well, if that's true, then God answered somebody's prayers. And then also there have been times when I have experienced a message that was powerful and to the point, a blessing. And sometimes from a, a very young minister that I'm just amazed at how they could have the depth of understanding. And so to be careful not to lift them up in pride, I'll say, brother, I was praying for you and God answered my prayers this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth light. You know, we, we can know a lot, and we can tell you the truth. But if it's not brought into, re, in, into reality by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, God working and his love involved, that truth can actually be detrimental to a person's perspective. And so we need to honor that reality that we are simply instruments that God is working through to accomplish his goals and his means and for his glory. <clears throat> well, there is the reality that we are earthen vessels. We're vessels. Yes, um, there's a sense in which we're, we're earthen vessels and that we're broken vessels even. And that God can use our brokenness for his glory. But he needs, he needs something that we have to be, for us to be able to connect with that, that truth and spiritual reality that he's sufficient, that he's able to bring about his purposes and his power in our life. And it's interesting that what he really needs is, is our surrender of, of what we have, the, the uh, raw material, you might say, of, of what he created in us. He needs it to be useful. We have to give it up. We have to surrender it. We have to make it available to him. We need to volunteer it. And what is that resource that he's given us that we are called on to give back to him? Well, I want to propose this morning that it is our mind. I'm amazed, as I have been noticing in Scripture, uh, since I've been thinking about this for some time, as I read Scripture, I, I come to realize again and again, he says that we have to surrender our mind. It is, it's through our mind that we're able to come to, the, to understand and, and be involved in his spiritual truths and realities. Yes, it's, it's the Spirit of God at work, but the Spirit of God doesn't control or help or, or educate a mind that is a mind that is controlled by the world or, or surrender to the world's perspective or seeking after the world's perspective. But it's a mind that has been dedicated and consecrated to God. And so I challenge us this morning. When we take, talk about our mind, our ability to think and to process, we think about it as, as the intellectual pr perspective. 
And it's easy for us, somehow, it, it's just inbred in the flesh, that if my mind's functioning well and I'm really able to, to articulate truth and, and facts and realities, that I am somebody. I've got a, real, a mind that's really working well. That means that points to, to me and glorifies me. That's, that's kind of a reality, isn't it? In the flesh, don't we tend to think that way? There's another thing that I'm just going, this is extra to throw in here a little bit along the same line, but there's another thing that I've noticed about the flesh and the fleshly perspective, and that is that, that somehow our worthwhileness is tied to the dollar bill. The more dollar bills somebody has, the more worthy they are of being honored and considered somebody. And a person that doesn't have so many, somehow it's just a tendency to say, well, they're not really with the program that well. They're not that smart. You know, we, we tend to tie uh, a person's ability to accumulate wealth with their intelligence. And then their intelligence somehow marks their, their worthiness. Am I right? Is that, is that God's perspective? No. I want us to look at God's perspective this morning. Because we tend to think that the more money we have, the more abundant our life is going to be. And in a sense, it is. But it's a life of empty pursuits and empty fulfillments, if that's our perspective. I didn't say money's wrong, and I didn't say it's wrong to enjoy the benefits of money. But if that's where our focus is, and that's where our our connection to uh, what we evaluate as worthy or not worthy, we're in the wrong camp. We're headed the wrong direction. Ephesians 2, 3 says, among whom also we all had our conversation time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We all know what it is like to have sought our own way, allowed our mind to govern our perspective from the fleshly perspective. Ephesians 4, 17 says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, emptiness of their minds. And I've been referring to those some of those things that are actually a, pros, a product of that kind of thinking and that kind of mindset. But I want us to hark back to a verse that we noticed earlier in the very beginning, or several verses, where we're, where we're employed... Uh, we're implored to walk worthy. Here he's talking about not walking after the world, but to walk worthy. What, is, what does walk mean? You know, we think of that as, well, as you're going, you might say. And that's true. That's what it's about. But I'd like for us to take a little deeper look, and I've done this before here. I think some of you haven't heard this, but some of you have. But just, all right, I want you to think about it again this morning, that, that walking is a very complex, perplex uh, experience in the human body. There are a lot of things that go into us walking. Our mind is totally involved in our, the walking process. We don't think about it because it's, it's been so well learned. It's so much of a habit. And yet our mind has to be functioning or it won't happen. In other words, every step is a response of the brain sending signals to the body through the nervous system to the muscles to make this muscle, that muscle, all the muscles cooperate together to cause that foot, that leg to move the foot out and to set it down in another position toward the goal that you want to pursue. And 
it's amazing to stop and think about it. You know, you can almost stumble if you start to get involved in this process and think about what your feet are doing. It's so automatic. You know, we kind of have a goal out there. And so we, we go toward the goal. And, and we're, our focus is on what we want out there, but our brain is helping us do this job of, of involuntary mo- motions in our body to make it happen that we get there. If I'd want to go back and get a drink at the water fountain, I'd be thinking about a drink, the water fountain. You know what my brain has to do first? It has to tell my feet to turn slightly to the right and to the proper angle, because if I didn't, I might wind up with too big a step to, to, to deal with. And so, and I don't think about these things, but I, I'm, I'm moving, and, and each foot is responding to the brain to, to keep balance, right speed, right distance, and move towards the step. And then, then the brain processes the change of, of altitude and the flooring, and I, it, it makes available that balance situation to move down a step and then down another step. And I'm still thinking about water. But I get to the bottom and my left foot says, my brain says my left foot, turn this much angle. Right foot, bring it on around. Another step, another step. And you see, things are happening that make it possible for me to walk. I want us to think about that in the spiritual realm. Paul says to walk worthy. Does that mean I just want to be doing it right? And that takes care of it. No, it means that we're connected to the, to the head. And we respond to the signals from the mind of God in our life. And they, they almost become automatic that we've been there, we know what's expected, and we live a life that responds properly and, and we're, we're going toward the goal that God is calling us to in perfection, spiritual perfection. But you know, if there's a short circuit in our brain to our extremities, Things can get, in, we can get in trouble. I don't want to necessarily call undue attention to myself, but this is partly the illustration, I guess. And, you know, forgive me for this, but several years ago, year, a little over a year and a half ago, you remember I was uh, laid up for a while because of a, a knee problem, a leg problem. It was severe. I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I could hardly function at all. <clears throat> and as it turned out, it was kind of, uh, the pain was actually not pain from injury. It was pain from nerves sending wrong signals to and creating this pain. It was it was what they called referred pain. It was uh, just generated by nerves not functioning right. And I discovered that my left knee was really in trouble, my left leg. And as I started getting getting better, some relief, I discovered that I couldn't walk right. My my left leg just wouldn't function right. And I finally decided that it must be that the nerve signals had got messed up enough that the voluntary, the involuntary signals to that knee weren't getting through real well. And so I was, rather than bending my knee like normal, I discovered it wasn't just because there was pain there. It was because the nerves weren't telling it to do the right thing. And so I was limping. I was kind of post-legged. And I was challenged by someone in the family. Are you going to just go into old age like that? Are you going to limp from now on? And that was good admonition because I started thinking about it. My mind started reconnecting to reality. (laughs) And so I actually started, I realized I need to purpose that need to bend as I walk. And so I did, started thinking. Every step I would think, get that knee out there. Let's get rid of this limp. And I actually discovered there was good therapy for that. And that was that if I would mow the lawn with a push mower, 
that that knee had to bend. And I didn't have to talk to it so often. It just, it followed the lawnmower and, and that served as therapy. And you know, it wasn't too long after I started doing that, that I was able to walk without a limp. Not without pain, but without a limp. And I'm sorry to say that that's not quite true anymore. I, that those nerves are starting to challenge things again. So if you see me limping a little bit, you can pray for me that uh, I get that fixed up again. But I, I was saying something to a doctor about this that I found it interesting that I could actually teach my leg to the involuntary motions to take over again. And he said, well, that's, that's a known therapy in, in the health world. That's called, uh, see, he had a, a word for it. Now I can't say, so I better not try it. I might mess it up. But anyway, there, there's actually an acknowledgement that that is needful and help. And so what I'm saying, it's kind of interesting. God brings us together as Brothers and sisters, around the word of God, we are challenged to reconnect, make sure that all the involuntary uh, resources are flowing from God to our body. It's that reevaluation of our surrender to the, to the signals from God through his spirit into our life so that we get the right responses and we walk worthy unto the pleasing reality of pleasing our Savior. So my challenge to you this morning is, is that flow happening? Or is your walk, is your spiritual gate without hindrance, without a limp? Are you able to be walking toward the excellency of Christ in your life in a, an abundant way? That it's free. It's, you know, I, I actually kind of envy these young people that can get out and run and jump and, and do things that I, took for granted when I could do it. That's the abundant life. That's beyond good enough. To be able to do those things, it's kind of scary to me to, to forget sometimes that I'm not able to run and jump, and sometimes I, I need to. I'm out working animals, and there needs to be a quick response to the direction of an animal, and I, I used to just take off and get it done. Now it's like uh, a lot of challenge. Uh, how careful do I need to be? How much can I do? How fast can I go? One day I was awakened to the realities of my situation when I was trying to, to confine a bull in a corner of a barn. and I was being very strategic about the way I went about this. And if it, was, you farmers who handle animals, you know you need to be strategic when you're dealing with a bull or a mean cow. And so I was trying to be so careful and I was just at the right place and I was uh, given the right pressure on the animal so he wouldn't get too pressured and turn around and, and, and come after me, but enough that he'd go where I wanted him to go. And, and uh, I think I mentioned already that a farmer that needs to work cattle becomes an animal psychologist. You, you can't do it without being a, a good animal psychologist. And so we've learned tricks to this thing of, of the psychology of, of animals. And, <clears throat> but uh, somehow, there was uh, an old weed laying in the barnyard that I had knocked down earlier in the summer, but it hadn't gone away. But I was focused on the bull and not realizing that my feet didn't come up as high as they used to. And I caught my foot on that weed and I laid straight out behind that bull right on the ground. Well, that was a moment of just a small moment of horror, thinking what if he took advantage of the situation. But God was gracious and I was able to get up and finish my, my job. It helped me realize how important it is to be able to have that freedom and the, the abundance of freedom to walk and maneuver. 
Well, that's what God wants us to have in the spiritual realm. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, and I want to challenge you this morning with some things that I don't know as much as could be known, and I don't really know it. I want to know all of it. But we have a spiritual adversary, and he's worse than any bull. And he is always looking for ways to take advantage of us when we're satisfied with good enough. Or maybe not even concerned about being good enough spiritually. He's out there. He's 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 watching. He's interested in moving in on us. He's actually tempting us to lay down our vigilance and our desire for the excellency of Christ in our life. How's he do it? He does it by the world system around us. By the the uh, he takes advantage of the fact that we still are still are in the flesh and we have a responsiveness to the temptations of the flesh. And so we we need to crucify the flesh daily. And if he can entice us to take up the fleshly interest of life and to and to believe that some of those good things are good enough and, and we can just be what enjoy life to the fullest here like we're inclined to want to at the expense of our spiritual pursuits and development, then he can actually get us to a point where he can cause us to be vulnerable to the other traps he sets along the way. There's one thing that you don't hear much about, and I don't like talking about it, but I'm going to share a little something this morning that I think, and, and I feel like possibly this is why this message wasn't preached earlier. I had a I've had a difficult time preparing for this message, not not knowing exactly what God had in mind. There seemed to be something that he wanted me to share. And, and finally, I kind of figured I, I had it in mind. And so I want to share a little bit this morning something about this world that we live in that, that we need to be aware of and we need to be careful about. Now, I read to you from Ephesians 4.17, and he says this, I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now, you see, I talked about, I stopped there, went back and talked about walking properly and getting it right and being and walking in, in the provisions that God has provided. But he's admonishing us here to be careful not to walk the way the Gentiles walk, and it talks about the vanity of their mind. Here it is, the mind again in focus. And the vanity of the mind is when the mind is lifted up in, in and of itself in pride. And I'm going to tell you a secret. When this mind starts to take on this, this, this proud perspective, it actually elevates itself to the point where you begin to see the emptiness of it. That's what the word vanity means. The empty mind. Empty of God's perspective. And so when he says, not as the vanity of their minds in the world setting, he's saying those who have are following the fleshly mind are actually walking after a life that is perpetuated by a mind that's empty. Oh, you tell somebody that, that, that you know is pretty intellectual? You think you'd have their friendship long? It doesn't mean they're not intellectual. It doesn't mean they're not able to think. It's not able to, it doesn't mean they're not really smart. What it means is they're empty of God's perspective. And God created us to use our minds to fulfill his perspective. So that's the call. But there are some challenges to that that are, are in the world that I just want to make us aware of. In our Rules and Discipline Statement of Faith, on page 42, we have a number of things that are listed there 
um, <clears throat> under um, the title of, let's see here. I want to give you the, the heading of this to put in perspective. Oh, yes. It's actually just discipline, uh, discipleship, and nonconformity. And then we have, what, 17 articles, uh, 21 articles listed there. Well, I want to look at the very last one, 21. It says, in secret orders, inasmuch as swearing of oaths, secrecy, and the unequal yoke involved in secret societies are in violation of Bible principles, members are not, shall not affiliate with any such societies. And it gives two references, John 18, 20, Ephesians 5, 11, and 12. <clears throat> I've, been, I've been becoming aware over the last number of years of the influence of some of these secret societies in our um, civilization, not just here in the United States, but in the world order of things. And I've come to realize that a lot of, of what... It, precipitates in the world order of things that we realize, maybe we don't realize, we, we see it as, as a world system functioning and working its way along, and I don't know that we really realize how much Satan is in control of the world system. We'd like to say, ah, it's kind of here, neither here nor there, uh, it's just our moral things, it's the government, it's, it's civil realities, it's people that just haven't accepted the Lord. And, and so we have these consequences of that happening in, in the world society. And I've viewed it that way pretty much, I think. And I still think there's a, there's a certain amount of that in reality, but there are some very specific ways that I believe Satan is in control of the world system. And I think we need to be a little bit aware. Like I say, I don't think we, do well to just delve into understanding it all. But I think it's important that we have an understanding that it exists and that we need to be careful and aware. <clears throat> what I've learned and understand is that actually one of these secret societies I th- that I think is prominent in world domination, if I understand correctly, not in its truest form, but but the roots of it actually happened not centuries ago, but um, millennia ago with Nimrod when he, uh, in rebellion, walked away from God and began to establish a world order. And that influence was driven by the prince of the power of the air then, who still operates today. And a lot of what was created and precipitated then has carried on and carried over in different ways until today it's still is still operative in our world and I might just go uh, have you go with me to uh, Jude I've come to believe that actually Jude was making some references to this power in 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 the in the known world at that time <clears throat> I'm not sure where to, to uh, start and, and finish reading. I believe I'll begin reading at uh, verse 3. <clears throat> and I don't expect to conclude the whole, whole book, but let's begin reading at 3. 
Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Uh, I'll stop there to just say, if there wasn't a threat to their faith, why would they need to contend? So keep that in mind. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of, that, of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in life, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth in an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak e evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about, with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, let me start over verse 9. <clears throat> Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a reeling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. I'll stop there to just say, I believe this was written to help us understand that the powers of darkness are nothing to be fooled with, and they're not for us to rebuke personally. They're a lot more in strength and and uh, and spiritual power than we in our of ourselves, and you notice what he said that that Mike uh, Daniel did when he was or Michael did when he was uh, involved in disputing about the the death of the body of Moses. It says he let the Lord rebuke him. Now this was an angel, the the archangel of God, that was careful how he approached this this power spiritual power. He turned it over to the hand of, of God. And we need to be careful too. And that's why I, I talk about these things in a measured way. We need to be careful. Verse 10, but these things speak evil of those, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. But, but they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Basically saying that there are people who think they can command the spiritual reality they're unwise. Or that they are unwise in the way they make references to things that are beyond mankind in strength and power. Verse 11, Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after their Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Cory. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about with winds, trees whose fruit whereof uh, withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars of whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. I find this so interesting. Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied these things, and he prophesied as it relates to a time that hasn't happened yet. 
And so you fill in the blank from Enoch to now. It's all there. And he says that, that they're not going to be dealt with properly until Jesus comes and reveals himself in the clouds and brings judgment on them. And so I'm saying with the authority of the scripture that it's a reality that we need to be aware of and that we need to be uh, not focused on, but mindful of it, we need to be careful because of the influences. Now, I want to back up and just make comment. Uh, well, let me read a little bit further before I make this comment. Verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walkers after their own lust, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Remember I made comment about you can have intellectual people, smart people, wealthy people that are looked up to and reverenced as, as being somebody, but their minds are not focused after God, and so there's a vanity of their mind. There's an emptiness there. And I believe this is what he's referring to. They have admiration of, of men for advantage because of their position and their ability to, to, to uh, persuade and, and influence. But beloved, verse 7, but beloved, remember ye the words that were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last times who should walk after their own ungodliness. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto the eternal life, unto eternal life. I almost uh, cease to read there at this at this point. But I want us to think about, I, I don't want us to think about this passage as being that we are looking around at each other as those people that are being referred to. He talks about those who are in your feast and, and so on and so on. I never could understand why we expect to have that kind of a turmoil in our, in our, uh, in the church of Jesus Christ in the last times. There is a little element of concern about letting ourselves get there. But I believe that this actually is more of a reference to Christendom as we speak, the large perspective of Christendom. We have a lot of people who name the name of Christ who are advocating these things. And I just, this is just a comment to help us think a little bit. I don't uh, listen to radio talk show hosts. Uh, I used to a little to keep a little bit of an idea of what's going on. I have kept up with some others who are on the same level as that a little bit, and I realize I've got to be careful not to get involved there too much. But, you know, they have a tendency to to say, we're Christian, we're the right, and and but they, they speak boastful things and nasty things about people that are in authority and those who are, are God-ordained for our leadership of our country and so on. And I want us to be careful that we don't allow our say, ourselves be influenced by that kind of mentality and find ourselves actually being part of that group of murmurers and complainers and those things that actually are a sign of that lack of connection with God, having ourselves lifted up in intellectually and allowing the, the reality of the spiritual connection and the, the spiritual realities to be what's in focus and what drives us and what we experience the abundant life in Christ. And so a caution is there. But I want to go on a little bit further to explain my concern about this group of people. It's not just nominal Christians or, or people that call themselves Christians, but this secret group that I'm referring to actually uh, 
they, they actually, as I understand it, I, I was able to kind of take a peek inside of, of this recently about uh, someone who was part of the group that that decided that accepted Christ, and he said I, he had to renounce all those things that of darkness and mystery and sorceries that were involved in that secret society to be part of Christ. And so he was willing to lay his life on the line because he had made an oath to die a horrible death if he ever revealed the secrets of this secret society. And everyone in that secret society has vowed those vows to not share those secrets. That's why you don't hear much about it. That's why we don't know much about it. But what I've discovered is that, well, I'll say this. I understand that they have they have a code of ethics. It's, it's amazing. Because when you see what all uh, of the disparities spiritually that they are involved in, that they actually have a code of ethics. But one of their, one of the criteria of their code of ethics is to not, not bring anything to pass on humanity that's, that's of, of an evil nature. And by the way, they do a lot of that bringing evil on mankind intentionally, but they, they have this code of ethics. They don't do it until they have given warning. And this individual that was sharing uh, shared that there, there's warnings all around us. They're in plain sight, but we're blind to the things that are in plain sight because they're so obvious that we don't see them for what they are. And he revealed what some of those things are. And and I'll just say this. I, I don't want to get your curiosity up so much that this becomes your focus, but even our monetary system is is based on some of, and, and the there are, there are signs and signals on our, on our dollar bill that actually are, are a revelation of, of the reality of this group. And they call them, they use the name of Christ and they talk about Christ, but it was revealed that actually they're talking about the Antichrist. And they talk about light and knowledge, but their light is Luciferian night, light. You know, he was the star of the morning, Lucifer. And actually they worship Lucifer as light. And it's the enlightenment that they have. And so they feel so wise and, and so superior. And actually, one of their mantras is that if you're not part of their secret society, you are worthless and in, inferior to them. And your life isn't worth much. But they treat people as though they're worth something because that's to their advantage, mostly. But then when it comes right down to what their schemes are, human life isn't worth much at all. <clears throat> actually, it's, it's appalling to come to realize some of the, the values or lack of values they put on human life and the way they exercise that. Well, I want to move on. I want us to end on a positive note, but, uh, I just, I just wanted to share that partly because I feel obligated as a prophet, so to speak, to help us be aware, to be careful. We do live in dangerous times. We're in the end times. We're in the times that this actually is referring to um, in, in the last days. Christ is about to come back and bring judgment on these things. But I believe until he does, there are going to be more manifestations and, and more vivid manifestations of these realities that are being schemed. And, you know, we think about here in the United States, we are a Christian nation, in quotes, and, and I think we, we all have a real question about that anymore. But uh, we, we are able to function as Christians, but our enemy, who is that angel of light, is so desperate to destroy us that he's willing to do it at any angle. 
And some of it is done through this benevolency of this so-called light and Christness. This person revealed it said you never hear them use the name Jesus because Jesus is counter to their their schemes. But they use Christ because that, that word actually means the anointed one and they're referring to their anointed head. Well, <clears throat> let's look at the good side. Ephesians 4.23 says, and, he, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on a new man, which after Christ is created in righteousness and true holiness. <clears throat> you notice it says that, that, that we have a renewed spirit of our mind. And I've talked about that a little bit. I'm going to come back to that, that we do have responsibility to turn our mind over, to, to cleanse it, to repent of the things in our mind that are, are against the principles of, of Jesus' lordship in our life. And allow him to renew our mind. In uh, Romans 12, verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we transformed? How are we made into that new creature? There is a way, and it says, By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that good and perfect and acceptable will of God is, is that beyond good enough. That's that... Uh, Abundance in Christ. In Colossians 3.10 it says, And I put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We need to be looking to Jesus. We need to be uh, experiencing Jesus in our lives. And I want to honestly admit to you this morning, this has been a real challenge to me as I've been thinking about it. How much is Jesus my friend? How much do I talk to Jesus? How much do I appreciate what Jesus is and what he's done to me in my daily walk. Those involuntary steps I'm taking, are they out of, of a joyful reality of knowing my friend Jesus as my best friend? Or are they happening out of habit? And I don't even acknowledge Jesus in my life that much. That's a real question that I've been looking at and challenging myself. In Ephesians 4.20, uh, 24, we've already looked at it, but I'm going to look at it again. No, this is a different one. This is, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I guess we, yes, we did read that one. But I want us to think just a little bit. What is the new man? What does he look like? In verse 13, it says, uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> we have the, the love chapter. And that follows the chapter of gifts that Paul said. And he said, Covet the best gifts, but I show you a more excellent way, the more abundant way. And he says, and now about if these faith, now about if faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. <clears throat> so I want us to look at these three just briefly. Faith. These are the ways that you, you process things to, to challenge the mind, to, to grow the mind in this abundance of Christ, in Christ. And there are many other things we could talk about, but I, I just see these as crucial outline to successful living. Faith. What is faith? It's persuasion, a credence, a moral conviction of a religious truth or the truthfulness of God or a religious teacher. That's, that's a definition given. But it goes on to say a special reliance upon Christ for salvation, abstractly, constancy in such profession by extension, the system of religion. So our faith 
is the way we live also. Not just what we believe, but it's, it's the way that belief affects the way we live. That's our faith, we call it. From Scripture, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance, something real, of things hoped for. The evidence, something real, of things not seen. Faith. Reaching out with that understanding in our heart, the belief that connects us to the spiritual realities. In Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is... Oh, this happens in the mind now. Remember, we're renewing the mind. It's by the mind that we connect to these realities. He says, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if you really believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, you will be diligently seeking him. If you're not, you don't really believe it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easy beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our hope, no, of our faith. And by the way, when he says, and I've, I've said this before, I think a number of times, I want to reiterate it. When he says, let us lay aside every weight in the sin, which shall besets us, that sin, I'm convinced, is lack of faith. That's the sin. <clears throat> now that was faith. Hope. Hope is that, and I'm reading a definition again. Expectation. Um, abstractly or concretely uh, a hope, something we, we expect, we anticipate. It's not something we just wish for, but it, it mentions we with, it's with confidence that we know we can expect. That's hope. And so go, we go into several verses here. It says in Colossians 1.23, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereby Paul I made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereby I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for, for you to fulfill the word of God. Now notice verse 26 and 27. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. And among the Gentiles, which is, which is, listen what the mystery is. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope that, that, that reality, that expected reality that Christ is there and going to continue to take you through. And then you can become part of that, that uh, group of people that's referred to in 2 Timothy 4.8, where it talks about there's laid up a crown of righteousness unto all those who love his appearing. You don't love Christ's appearing if you're not ready for him. You don't love Christ's appearing if your mind isn't focused on thinking the way he wants you to think and walking the way he wants you to walk. You're not really loving his appearing. The tendency is to love the dollar bill, to love a good experience in life, to love the good things of life, to seek for that abundant life which is supposed to be guaranteed and grant, granted us by our declaration of independence that we have the, the freedom for the, for the pursuit of happiness and all those things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is a mystery. 
in that we identify with Christ and we uh, can experience his reality in us, Christ in you. And my challenge just this morning is, is Christ really in us? That's the way to abundance, our abundant life. Well, I want to say this yet about hope. It talks about hope as a mystery. There's a lot we could look at in terms of hope in the scriptures. I just won't have time this morning. But <clears throat> Satan uses counterfeits. And where, where there is a mystery that, that normal people in this world aren't able to comprehend and understand because they have not dealt with the mind properly to align it with Christ, which means having to acknowledge sinfulness and repent of sinfulness and surrender and submit our wills and die to self. If that process has been taken, then we can enter into the mystery. There are things that you have to do to enter into the secret society I'm talking about. You have to surrender some things. You have to promise some things. You have to take on a curse. You have to, There's different things you have to do. It's Satan's counterfeit to the gospel. Because he wants you to, to be so pleased and proud that you are part of this secret mystery, you see. And he satisfies that, that fleshly desire to be on that level of superiority. Well, we can be on a level of superiority too, but we're humble about it, okay? We experience the, the abundance of Christ, and that's superiority over civilization. But we don't tout it as being something that's exclusive to us. We invite others to come along. And we prove it by the next one, and that is charity. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, it says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. So <clears throat> we're not there yet. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face. Now I know in part. But then shall I know even as I am known. And that goes on to say, Now about faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. And then in, <clears throat> on in scripture, it talks about the fact that that. These will actually be done away with, the two of them. The only thing that's going to last into eternity is the charity part. And I have a lot of verses here yet that I'm not going to read about love, charity. But I will read this one. Verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. Actually, I want to read 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, may, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he wants of us. That's what's available to us. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, and, and this is how love works. It says, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering, a sacrifice to God as a sweet smelling savor. When we give ourselves to Christ as, as surrendered and totally his, then we give him, we give ourselves to him to be used to minister to the lives of others, sacrificing our lives for the good of others. That's the love of Christ. That's how he demonstrated 
that charity, that true love that comes from above. <clears throat> and in the, then in Ephesians 6, 23, it says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith. You see, this love doesn't work right without the faith. But there's a day coming when the faith isn't necessary because love is going to become so real. It's going to be, it's going to be totally reality in, in heaven. And the hope goes away because we're not hoping anymore with confidence. We have the confidence. We're there. And so there's a sense in which we, um, love is, we're just tasting charity, love now. And we will know it in its entirety and its fullness when we finally are called home to experience the total reality, spiritual reality of what's provided us through Christ. So I challenge you this morning, don't be looking around at the darkness around you, but be the light. And let that light shine in your life and the realities of your everyday steps in your experience with Christ. Let it be a light that actually penetrates the darkness, that actually speaks to someone who is has the vanity in their mind or they're, they're empty of the spiritual truths. <clears throat> there was something I need to share yet. In minister's study week, something was said that made me think about this thing of, of someone plants, another person waters, and God gives the increase. And I wasn't thinking about that, but one morning I was looking out the kitchen window at a big oak tree behind our house. It's a beautiful oak tree. And we have a second one, almost like it, that we planted. That's at the farmhouse where we live now. When we moved out of the farmhouse down to where Evans live now, uh, the Sunday school class here at Pike gave us some gifts as, as actually, <clears throat> it wasn't because we moved, it's because we actually moved to a different congregation to serve. And they gave us several things. And one of them was an oak tree, a pin oak, which I don't know how they knew I liked that. But I planted it right there below Evans' house. And it's not as nice as the one I planted earlier at our house, but they're both beautiful. But I was looking out that, out that window and I thought, you know, I'm so glad that I had this conviction at a young age that it's important to plant trees now because you can't redeem lost time. If you want a big tree, you got to get it growing. And if you wait too long, it will never be a big tree that you can appreciate. It'll get big for somebody else. And so I planted those trees with that in mind. I made it a, a high priority. When we moved to another place, I planted trees. And, and, yeah. And so I was thinking about, you know, pat myself on the back that look what I did. This is wonderful that I did this. And it hit me. All you did was planted a little sapling out there. God. Well, you might have watered it some, and others may have watered some. But God gave the increase. God actually gave the water. I did plant it at a good place. I don't know that I planned on it, but I planted a low place in really deep soil, and it had every reason to really thrive, and it did. But then I had to think, yeah, God did that. That's his tree. He gave it to us. But I had to do something. I had to be involved. I had to plant the tree. I had to take my mind and tell myself it's important and do something, and then God could do things. You know, if I wouldn't have done that and we just watered that hole hoping for a tree to come someday, we'd have a mud hole. Would that bring glory to God? No. He asks us to engage in, in understanding what he wants and to do our part so he can do more. And so the challenge this morning is, do we have the mind of Christ? Do we know what he's thinking? Oh, we could all grow tremendously and be more abundant in this. But are we working at it? Is it a reality? That's my challenge this morning.